Hello listeners, welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. I'm very excited, which is not unusual for me as you all know, but I'm very excited because we have a new Stan McChrystal book to talk about. And you all should know by now that if there's anyone I want to sit beside on an 18-hour flight, it's Stan McChrystal. And I'm sure he would enjoy it right to the point where he throws me off the plane. And if you haven't heard that already, you can go back and listen to the Blind Insights Live uh, December 2021 edition that you can find on our Facebook page. How are we doing good here at Cross Promotional? Back catalogue. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well. Just had my last pink coffee for the year. <laughs> yeah, it is the last recording for the year, and we've got a very special guest, returning guest. Thank you very much, Luke. It has been a long time. What, 12 months nearly? It least, must be nearly. Least. Literally, I wonder if it's the same thing a week before Christmas. Because I remember we went out after and had a beer like it was literally the end of the year. We weren't going to see each other again in 2020. I think we went into lockdown just before. I remember we were sitting around and we went into oh. the... Griffin's head, wasn't it? Yeah, mm. and had a beer, and then went mm, go home. <laughs> and that was the that was the the Woodville Pizza, yeah, yeah. shop. That poor dude. <laughs> the place is still going though. Yeah, which didn't hurt. No such thing as bad publicity, I guess. Uh, <laughs> if you can ride through the initial <laughs> storm, yeah, true. I, I'm I'm actually amazed. That actually, that's a good point. <laughs> So maybe we should do a live episode from the Woodville Pizza Bar. <laughs> Luke, you in if we do a pizza run? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Gents, I haven't read this book, so you uh, have to have to start off by explaining perhaps <laughs> a little bit of what it, what it is, what's, what it's about. You want to start, Luke, or you want me to sort of fill in the history of Stan? You go. You All go. Right. You'll do it justice. Well, well, I'll do that or I'll just sound like a fanboy is <laughs> a whole other issue. Okay. History of books by Stan McChrystal. Leaves the U.S. Army after a scandal that was proved not to be a scandal, that it wasn't him that had said something about Joe Biden, it was one of his majors. Then writes his first book, My Share of the Task, talks about an entire career within special operations, including leading a task force in Baghdad that essentially destroyed al-Qaeda in Iraq, and probably single-handedly also set the circumstances for the creation of ISIS, because they all realised these dudes in this task force are really scary how about we just hide for a few years and wait for them to leave? But that's a whole other story. So that book had a lot of things he'd done, a lot of things he'd learned in a very practical sense. Then we move on to other books like Team of Teams, One Mission, uh, Leadership, or Leaders, I now can't remember what it's called. In each book, Stan refines all the lessons he learnt in his career and also then relates them more and more to the corporate world where he's now got his own consultancy called the McChrystal Group. And now we have his new book, Risk, which almost has as many ways to apply the ideas and to think about the ideas in a corporate setting as he uses stories from his career. So we now have the point where you don't have to understand where Stan came from to understand how to use what he's talking about. And he's clarified his language to make it comprehensible to people who've gone through the orthodox world of you know uh, business and commerce and economics programs in universities and have learned to think inside the lines like super, super conventional people and to try and help super conventional people 
to deal with all the things that can go wrong. And the essence of the new book, Risk, is the greatest risk we face in most situations in institutions and organisations is the organisation itself. How the organisation functions is our biggest single constant risk. So today we're going to unpack this idea because it's something that when I started reading the book, I just started laughing hysterically, going, ha, 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 what did I say about Adelaide University for 10 years? It is its <laughs> biggest problem is itself. I think if you were starting with Stammer Crystal, you'd almost start with risk. Yeah, go backwards. Because it's the most yep. accessible of all of them and not that the other ones are difficult but i think unless you've come from some sort of military or paramilitary background you go and read team of teams your eyes will start to glaze over a unless little the bit. stories a, get you yeah. you're not going to get much else yeah and yeah. then even one mission again it's still very i suppose military centric um so if you started here you get an idea of the concepts and then you almost reverse engineer from mm. from risk backwards yeah, and the fact that he's got so good at telling corporate stories now in a relaxed way where he could leave time for the normal people to take a week to fix it rather than Stan just going, can we please fix it now? Yeah, mm. That's a big shift. So people probably feel less overwhelmed by the pace and intensity of the former world that he worked in. So from my perspective, one of the things I loved is the first chapter is on the importance of communications in organisations. And Stan makes the point that without communications, nothing will work, but that communications can't make up for another area being dysfunctional, which I viewed as a, a lovely confirmation of why I'm halfway through a Master of Strategic Communication. Because <laughs> it's like, well, when Stan says what I'm doing is right, then I must be okay. Fanboy moment. <laughs> so what, what makes kind of effective communications on in, internal... Because, you know, that seems like the place where it's most, um, uh, uh, like, where it's most natural to be, like, efficient at communication. Well, you would hope so. But unfortunately, what most companies do and organizations is invest in a media team who are outward looking mm. to set the image of the organization and to sell the product and forget about internal comms. So Stan starts with some really good questions. His first question is something that, you know, comes directly out of his experience in Baghdad. Can you even talk to everyone you need to talk to? Can you communicate with everyone inside the organization or network? And he gives the example of, you know, when he started you know, in command of a task force, he couldn't talk to lots of people in the task force easily. They didn't have a shared means of communication. They existed in different organizations, different levels of security, you know, long-term mistrust of all other organizations. Mm. So even developing can we talk to each other? And I would argue there's a similar problem in most organisations and institutions in that in most organisations you'll have individual divisions or teams who do different things. The people in them have different qualifications, different experience before the company, say at university or trade school, different experience in the organisation, and they speak different languages so that when you go to a meeting, people talk at each other, not with each other mm. so can we even talk to each other or communicate with each other becomes both a technical question and a cultural question which then flows into his second question as well if we can communicate with each other will we mm. which then raises the critical question of do we have a culture 
of multi-directional communications within our organisation. And in my experience of most organisations where I've consulted, the simple answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) You know, things you're meant to do flow from the top and discussion of how to work around that disaster move horizontally across the bottom. Mm. And never shall those two forms of communication connect or build a better thing. So it's almost like getting you know, an undercurrent in the ocean where you're swimming along on the top thinking everything's okay, doing your job, and then suddenly the undercurrent of a command from on high sucks you under and you nearly drown because there's no connection between the two kinds of communication that are going on. And to really answer your question, Tim, one of the biggest things Stan has talked about in every book is the importance of creating a narrative mm-hmm. for the organisation or institution. Mm-hmm. What do we do? Why do we do it? How do we do it? How do we behave? He leans, he leans on Google a lot yeah. in, in that with their initial, um, was it do no evil? Yep. was the initial narrative mm. that, they, that they established. Um, and that sort of governed basically everything that they did. But as they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, um, was it the, the Chinese government tried to bring them on board to yeah. – <sighs> Do some sort of survey was some sort of like surveillance program or some well, and the U.S. military offered them a ton of money to develop AI to look at drone footage, so people didn't have to. So it was both, but basically, you know, money that Stan would have been happy, you know, for Google to take, i.e., doing the work on drone footage being assessed more effectively by AI, mm. so JSOC could target people more effectively. That would have made a happy Stan. But that doesn't mean it makes a happy Google employee. Yeah. And when you've, you've come up with the simple premise of do no evil, well, that needs to be nuanced. So part of the story is not just have an initial narrative. Recognize that if you genuinely want to empower your people, they're going to contribute to the narrative. So in earlier books, Stan would either talk about the combination of shared consciousness and smart autonomy that combo made sense to special operations where they trust people. That combination terrified the corporate world because to give up having power over people in the corporate world freaks people out. Mm. So they're not going to allow shared consciousness. And smart autonomy suggests you can't micromanage your people. So the corporate world didn't like that either. So as time went on and he wrote more and more for a corporate audience, he moved to the idea of strategic alignment and empowered action. Mm-hmm. So strategic alignment means we're all on the same page, not that you have to give away what you know to your subordinates, even though you should, because then they can do their job better. And empowered action was, well, we've empowered them, so we're still in control, even though it's actually just another way of saying smart autonomy. So you change your language to suit an audience that don't really want to evolve into being truly effective. They just want to be effective enough. So really, if you're going to get to the point of developing a narrative so that it fits with strategic alignment and empowered action what you're saying is in time that narrative is going to be altered as it was at google by people saying no our you know our thing is do no evil we don't want to work for the defense department Mm -hmm. and that's something that i kind of wonder if this is the reason why google was broken up into multiple uh, companies under the label of alphabet so i wonder if alphabet some other company has taken on the contract to create AI to analyse drone footage with staff who know that's what they're working on. And they've signed up to work for that company, not for Google. And that company hopefully will have a narrative that is, you know, we do stuff to keep, you know, 
people safe or we do stuff to make sure targeting is effective. So have a narrative that actually fits what you need to do and make sure people know what they're a part of and how they can contribute to it. I think initially when you're talking about the like the lines of communication and you know big organizations generally the communication like you said flows very easily from top to bottom mm, just falls like gravity but mm. the best ideas generally come from mm. the people on the ground mm. and generally the people that have the best ideas or encounter the problem first and have the ability to perhaps really do something meaningful for that problem, and there's only a small window, like an action, a window where you can actually take action, they're generally not the decision maker. So whilst the information, the, the directions can come from the top bottom very quickly, mm. if you have identified a problem and have a solution, but you're not in a position to pull the trigger on that, it's got to go through mm. your boss and then your boss's boss, oh, and yeah. then your boss's boss, and then that person yeah. goes, oh, I need a bit more information, mm. so it comes back down. And then yeah. by the time you either get a yes do it mm. the opportunity's gone yeah yeah and that's what's so interesting that at no point in risk does stan talk about you know strategic alignment or empowered action it's almost like he's realized the bit of the corporate world that's willing to learn that has learned it and the rest have no interest in actually trusting people at the coalface and yet the whole reason that you know jsoc destroyed al-qaeda in iraq was because he trusted 22-year-old shooters to do the job. Mm. So the irony is, even though Risk is an amazing book because it lays out everything he learnt in the most accessible way possible, it's kind of telling what's missing. That that genuine thing of empowering people to the greatest extent, it's inferred with things like the Google example, but it is no longer an explicit part of the argument, which is an interesting decision. Sorry, it's no longer an explicit part of the argument. No, so so it's and so it should be. Absolutely, because for all these things to work, you ideally need strategic alignment, which is what a narrative provides. So say that's what a narrative is for. But the other end of this is why do you want everyone to know what the big picture is and to know where they fit? Well, you want that because you want them to be able to act as independently as possible and take on board as much capacity to solve things in real time. You want smart autonomy slash empowered action, Mm -hmm. and yet those phrases are missing from the book. Mm -hmm. He gives examples where people at sort of small team level are doing things in his example. Like a common example throughout the book is an airline making decisions and doing planning to work around problems and doing scenario training. And he's describing people at fairly low level in teams taking on a lot of responsibility in the training and acting very quickly because these things are so time sensitive. So he is he's saying it without saying it directly. But I would have liked him to continue to be direct like he has in earlier books other than the fact I would assume the feedback from his corporate clients is no we're not going to we're not going to trust people that much. How does this a a complementary book but also something that is a little contra- contrary to this would be what uh, Ben Horowitz's "What You Do Is Who You Are." Yeah, to the extent that you know it, your actions speak louder than your words, I suppose. So yeah. How 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 do you do you have to live out your narrative, or is it still more important to explicitly say it? No, you have to say it and live exactly what you say. Otherwise, you get the say-do gap. We all know what happens in organisations with a say-do gap. Mm. People trust what they see, not what they hear. 
But it's not enough to just do it. You have to also explicitly say it, right? Well, if you want to empower your people to know what they're a part of, Mm. because otherwise, how can they also do their part? Yeah. You've you've got to develop it, recognize that your people will continue to develop it because by doing their part, they are in a sense defining what someone else who will come into their team and do a similar job understands the job to be and understands the organization to be. You know, it's critical for someone at the top to explain the narrative well, but the narrative will evolve. And I think, again, this is why Stan picks the Google example, because the narrative evolved beyond the Google founders and actually caused them quite an embarrassing few months. And, you know, letters being signed by thousands of Google employees saying, we don't want to work for the Defence Department. We never want to work on anything related to weapons or war. Now, that meant Google lost a lot of money and got some sort of strange press, some... You know, people were wrapped that people at Google didn't want to work on weapons systems. Other people are like, well, retards. What do you think makes your world safe? Mm. So there was an interesting contrast there and probably a fascinating internal debate within Google, which means the narrative should now be much better defined. What does do no evil mean? It almost it would have almost got away from it a bit, though, didn't it? Like when they oh, yeah. first started Google... They didn't go from, we're going to start a search engine and one day, weapons. That's yeah. where we're going yeah. to be, <laughs> weapons. Yeah. So they they started off with the best intention. I, mean, yep. I mean, that's the way most things go, isn't it? Everything yep. starts off with the best intention. And over time, you know, it, you sort of, you edge a little bit closer. So maybe the military got them to do something that wasn't quite, wasn't mm. weapony, but maybe it was just mm. something internal. Okay. Just oh, so we did that. Yeah, yeah that's it. Or, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, we can do that. That's that's mm. not evil or whatever. And mm. it just edges across and edges across. And eventually, like you said, some, an employee went, hang on a second. This isn't, this isn't what we signed up for. Mm. And that shows that in a sense they didn't understand that the narrative would take on a life of its own. They kept saying they wanted people empowered. And you've got to remember, most teams at Google, one day a week you can work on a project you're interested in because that's where most of their next good ideas have come from. You know, you get what you need to do done in four, and on the fifth day you work with a team of people on something you're all interested in and see if you can get a breakthrough. And that's where they keep getting new ideas from. So they've always been really good at empowering their people, but there's a comma after that phrase as long as it leads to more money for Google. Mm. (laughs) So that actually ended up not looking like such a good thing. Are they pushing technology forward? Yes. But in the main, only to the benefit of shareholders. I guess they, you know, employees didn't really want a, a reality like uh, the Hollywood film Toy Soldiers, where they end up putting munitions chips in toys. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, is, is that a reference to the to the the cartoon movie back in the yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay nice. <laughs> it's amazing what what popular culture things occasionally pop up in a podcast <laughs> yeah. that doesn't have much popular culture in it. Yeah, We're a pretty weird bunch of dudes. <laughs> Apologies. It's just all I could think of. Oh, I remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay. It's very clear that you do know evil works on, and I, I don't want to sidetrack too much, but a very clear example of where that Google has had lots of e- like criticisms of being evil oh, yeah. sledged at it in other kinds of ways. I, yep. How, I guess it it's, it's a matter of perspective, right? Do you work at Google... It, People know what they're getting into when they sign up, right? It's still, do they? Or, well, that's that's my question. So, and this is part of Stan Crystal's point: is okay. any risk you deal with 
you think it's going to stay dealt with? Right. Yeah, okay, okay. So his constant thing is part of the reason for comms is because you need to be able to detect something, assess what it means, respond, and then write up what you learned. Mm. And you need to be doing that constantly in real time. So the point with risk is if you think you've dealt with one risk, fantastic, well done you. Big pat on the head and a lollipop. Now, repeat tomorrow because nothing stays dealt with. That's the reality of the level of complexity and integration that we all work in. That was what... When I started the book, I was expecting probably a bit more of a um, how you deal with risk when you encounter the problem, as in, you know, you, you mm. feed data in, you get, you know, what's the chances of this happening? And then if it does mm. happen, what are the consequences? But my sort of takeaway at the end of it was that risk is unavoidable. Mm. So instead of worrying about so much running stuff through a risk matrix, how can you strengthen your organization beforehand yep. to make it the most resilient mm. that when the risk in when the something invariably does go wrong, your organization is able to cope with You're it. You're already there. So essentially the book without admitting it is even more joint special operations command than his other books. Because what it's essentially <laughs> saying is train hard so you can fight easy. Yeah. Mm. And it's saying train real hard. In the corporate world, train like you have never trained before. So he's talking about having the, uh, the mock airline in the book do quarterly scenario exercises on major disasters. And assuming that everything goes wrong and even trying to yep. make when you do run your teams through these scenarios that your team is going to fail. You don't want yep. to come out the other end. Yep. Like, like you said in a few war games that they would do, the Americans would invariably win at the, in the end. Well, mm. you learn nothing from, no. from that. Yeah. You, you want your teams to fail, to fail so you can see why. So they would – yep. you call it red teaming where yep. you would – the opposition would be someone who knows exactly what you're going to do and would come up with yep. – genuinely scary shit that's going to take you out yeah and whilst you can't do that in the boardroom you do have someone who basically just plays the devil's advocate constantly in the room and that's their job is to find the holes Mm. however unlikely Mm. um in in the organization or in your Mm. your systems Mm. well that's the thing you know you can run these huge exercises as he describes in the book for the airline and say that the storm that's going to hit you know the country is so big literally everything will be grounded for a week now deal so, you, you know, because it's an exercise, you can go to what's getting used as a phrase more and more, a safe-to-fail type exercise, where there is no shame in the fact this storm's going to wipe everything out because it's an exercise. Mm. This is about you, in essentially, training at something being as bad as it can be, so when it's only normal bad, you'll be a superstar. So, again, this is train hard to fight easy in a different context. Is it also spreading the responsibility of assessing risk like we were talking yep. about? Yeah, everyone. Everyone has that initiative. Yeah, because everyone knows what they're a part of. Everyone knows what their bid is. Mm. So it's, an, it's a great book because it's more accessible, but it's also a funny book because of the bits that are missing and the bits that are now inferred mm. rather than being explicit. Mm-hmm. And I can see why he's doing it. Like the consultancy clearly is going very, very well. And when you have a read in sort of the, the, the business media in America, you know, McChrystal Group is very well regarded for very good reasons mm. because they shortcut, you know, the corporate world's way out of semi-incompetence by, you know, a decade if they're willing to listen. But that's the thing, are they? So you've got to, you know, the big thing I've learned out of comms this year, you've got to talk to an audience in the language they understand about the pain point they're willing to deal with. 
by working towards a desire they're interested in. Never mind if that's not enough. Isn't it, this book is a very strange timing, David, for having now followed, shadowed in some ways, Stan McChrystal's uh, career path. Oh, yeah. Like you're in communications now and Stan McChrystal <laughs> has a consulting agency and just released a book on communications. Locations, essentially. <laughs> now, there's tons of other stuff on practical risk in the book and that's the stuff that really – that's – just a refined version of all his other books. So mm. to me, that's all very useful. And for a person reading a Stan McChrystal book for the first time, the rest of the book will be really, really useful on conventional risk. But that's the stuff I've been teaching people how to deal with for nearly a decade. It's like that's the stuff to me where I go, I know that stuff so well and so inside out that you know I listened to Stan at 1.8 times, you know, which was bad because Stan sounds awesome, but I also didn't have time. I needed to get the book finished so we could do this. Yeah. And a lot of it's like, yep, that's a great summary. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. So from a practical perspective, all of you that did complex problem solving over the years will remember learning how to do a pre-mortem. Mm. You know, assume your plan has failed. The worst has happened. Now go and work out all the reasons why. Then work out which ones you can do something about. Now go make you know, sort of arguments for how those things went wrong. And only once you've got two lots of arguments about why it failed, now let's start fixing the things humans can fix. So for the first time ever in a non-specialist operations research book, there was a chapter on pre-mortem. Stan's obviously very familiar with it from the military, and he even mentions Graham Lamb, former commander of British SAS, who again is one of the only people I've ever heard in an interview talk about pre-mortem regularly. So I'm like, okay, well, at least this is in the public sphere now. It's now more than me and weird, you know, complex problem-solving people talking about it. Now Stan's talking about it. Thousands of people will. But I have a terrible feeling, like Jocko Willink's original book, Extreme Ownership, that Stan did an okay job of describing it, but I reckon people are going to not get the point because it's too new. Like when I've taught most of you, you know, pre-mortems, you all struggle for a minute about what do you mean we need to do? Until you actually get the sense, no, no, we need to break everything. Just keep breaking shit. Yeah. Because it's a really uncomfortable thought because we're so used to not wanting to break stuff. We've escaped our our terrible twos and we don't want to break everything anymore. Something I learned from the book about pre-mortems is the the pre-mortem is only as strong as the people you have at the table. and. I would, I would think a, a common mistake organisations would make is that they have the most senior, best and brightest people at the table mm-hmm. for the pre-mortem where he's saying, no, you do the opposite. So in the example we was using this airline, at their pre-mortem, they had the baggage handlers yep. at the pre-mortem. The most basic stuff in the world yep. is going to break, like the lifter to put the cargo containers on the plane. Yep. That's the first thing that's going to break is something simple and mechanical. Or I think they give the example if there's so much snow on the runway – the cleaning crews aren't going to be able to get to the planes. You can't clean the plane. You can't take off again. And the person who sits in the ivory tower is going to have no idea about these problems that are possibly no. going to become encountered. But that's these are the things that are going to cripple yep. an organisation. Mm. And I suppose coming, it's what, there's a, an underlying theme of diversity being one of the yeah. the things that you can have running through your organisation is going to make it mm. as strong and um, resilient as possible. And that's probably a little unusual coming from 
uh, a general in the US military that served through the, the 90s and 2000s where <laughs> diversity or equity and diversity was probably quite a dirty word back then. Right until they were losing in Iraq and then it's like, hey, you've got a skill set. But and, you know, diversity becomes code in the book at some level for everyone mm. because everyone is how he got it to work in Joint Special Operations Command. So it's everyone for outside the military is diversity. Mm. That's our word for everyone. And there's an immense power because everyone is not all these different people. It's also all these different people in all these different roles. And again, that is understated because the corporate world finds that a bit confronting, that actually the baggage handlers should be at the pre-mortem. Because otherwise you're just going to get – if you just have the same person sitting around that table, yep. you're just going to get the same answers from absolutely everyone. Yep, but time you need, and time again. You need the – from the CEO right down to the person checking people in – or in the case of the airline, checking yep. people in at the front desk. Mm. Yep. Because that person knows what happens when the computer system goes down or how mm. often the computer system has gone down. And maybe they there's this update that hasn't been – that's yeah. been sitting there. They just yep. keep going, get later, later, later because they don't have time. Yep. And that's the, when that storm hits and they're trying to re-divert everyone, that's the system that's going to go down. And that'll be the little thing that cripples the whole organisation. Yep. But the CEO doesn't know that. It's just, you know, Mark or Wendy who's been sitting on the front desk. Yep. They know that problem. Yeah. So, so many things – yeah, this book is such a good thing to get people into this without having to necessarily think deeply about everything because everything's just laid out in a way where you want to follow along and you want to know how the story about the company ends. So it's a very good use of narrative to move people forward. So he's learnt to go from war stories, which is good narrative you know, for some people, to surviving difficult days at work stories, which is good narrative for basically every adult on planet yeah. Earth. More people can connect with this. It's like in a book like One Mission... You know, which I don't think Stan wrote any part of it, but I think he read it because now that was Chris Fussell and someone Goodyear. Can't remember the young guys. Chris Goodyear, no, because one Chris can't be two Chris's. <laughs> anyway, but the point with that book is, you know, Chris Fussell describes what it's like in Iraq, having to essentially be the person that when Stan wants to go out in the field and look at an operation, Chris Fussell has to make sure Stan doesn't end up dead, which means taking you know two troops of seals to make sure the boss doesn't die. <laughs> And that makes for a great story, but who really gets that or can make use of that story? Yeah. It's Chris Fussell's story about his life as a young SEAL officer basically having to organise that Stan doesn't die. That's interesting for 30 seconds. A minute to someone like me because of my background. But these stories about how this young airline deals with the fact that we have to practice dealing with incredible snowstorms in the northern US while also planning for the cost of fuel going up Mm. and wondering do we sacrifice a little bit of quality on the food on board to save a few dollars we can put into fuel. And that you have to juggle all of this. So the wonderful point is he's created a complete narrative that is far more accessible for the majority of people. Because out of those pre-mortems, you might – because he talks about people, I suppose, having the confidence and, you know, he says, you know, perhaps you just ask these questions anonymously because no one wants to be that guy. Mm. But if you set out from the beginning, so like you said, it's like a safe to fail. You can can Mm. ask the dumb what-if questions Mm. here. It could be something that the chances of it happening are so slim. 
but how much effort does it take to quickly write a procedure or something that in the event that it does happen, you can go, we've got something for that, and here's the framework that we've got. It doesn't have to be 100% laid out, but it's a starting point that you're not at least going, well, we're starting here from scratch. We've got something in place. We've considered it. And very importantly... That, that procedure will say the person who sees the problem is authorised to take immediate action. Mm. So the important thing of these things is not just the organisation as a whole knows what to do, but individual people know they're allowed to do it. Because people who believe that they're empowered and are trusted do a much better job at work. If they feel they're trusted, they feel they're valued, they feel they're going to be back to get things done, problems don't grow bigger while People are going, well, whose responsibility is this? Mm. What document do we use? Which boss do we have to ring? Well, you don't. Procedure says you saw it, you fix it now and let people know that it's a problem and you might need help. Off you go. Again, there's immediate action and a sense of, you know, we're all in this as trusted parts of a whole and we're all contributing to a better outcome, which is the essence of really every book he's written. If you can get people to feel they're a trusted part of something bigger and they understand the bigger and they understand their role and they know they're trusted to get on with it and there's a bit of wiggle room to go beyond what they do because they can see the big picture and they know, even if it's something new, that it still fits within the ethos of the company and their role. Most people aren't happy going to work. Most people don't get much meaning at work. In the kind of organisation Stan is describing, even being the baggage handler, Yes, you're the bottom of the food chain in so many ways. But he's treating you like you're trusted and valued, even in a small way, which is better than not feeling trusted and valued. I loved what he talked about inertia as mm. well and how you know an object will continue on the path that it's on unless another not another force or whatever acts upon it. He says mm-hmm. an organization is no is no different to that. It will continue to track along the exact same trajectory, whether it's going well or whether yep. it's not until something acts on it to 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 change it, and he sort mm. of t- uses the example of just you know if if the organisation is running poorly, it will just continue to run, run poorly, poorly until eventually it just runs into the ground. Mm. And it's it's those people, like you said, that are empowered to make those decisions that they they can act, and that is the force that will then change the direction yep. of the mm. organisation. But left to its own devices, yep. it will just continue to plough into the side of the mountain. Yep. Mm. The brick is just going to keep doing what it's doing sliding along the ice or the butter or whatever Mm. else until it hits the wall which is you know a terrible thing to happen because the implication of this is too that if things are going brilliantly and we're just powering along and it's fantastic now the lesson of the book is you are still suffering from inertia that was the blockbuster example wasn't it Mm. i think i think that's where he referred to blockbuster and doing stunningly well netflix came to see them and said hey how about we partner up the future is streaming. And Blockbuster went, well, why would we believe that when we're making a fortune? Now Blockbuster is dead and, <laughs> and Netflix, Netflix is, is huge. Yeah. <laughs> and yet the deal at the time when Netflix offered it was something that Blockbuster could have done you know, without going into debt. Yeah. I thought it was that they were going to buy the whole company, not just make a deal. No, right? that's what Netflix said. Buy us. Incorporate oh, right. us. Yeah. And we'll work as part of your bigger organization. Yeah. And we'll be the future division crazy we'll build what comes next and over time we can transfer resources and people to what will be the new world equally isn't that such a lesson for smaller companies with big ideas not to sell yourself short before yeah because <laughs> mm. you know netflix made it on their own they didn't have mm. to 
make strike that deal. So, mm. but I think they just appreciated that with that scale, mm. how could they not end up being the winner? Oh, so no, it was true, a decision true, to true, true. take the risk. Yeah, you know, they could probably do okay, but better to be the dominant player in the market. Right, and if that means you know selling the company out, but we all get stock in the combined company, that's probably not a bad deal if the combined company had had Blockbuster's resources and Netflix's brains. Well, yeah, and it it immediately proved that it wouldn't have been an opportunity that they wanted to be a part of anyway because by virtue of Blockbuster refusing to accept that future, they mm. would it would have been the worst environment to try and make them yep. change anyway. So, so Netflix knew from that point onwards play to win and assume you've got no allies. Yeah. Which, wow. difficult as that is, better to know it early and to know when you're hiring people, they need to understand, you know, we are the little player in a growing industry and we're up against, you know, some monolithic forces. And they probably will fall because of technological change. And they'll probably fall because of arrogance. Mm. But it could be another decade before we're not in their shadow and they're not a real danger to us. The worst part of that story, though, is that, if I remember correctly, the the owner or one of the owners of Blockbuster knew that the ship was going down, sold out, mm. and then bought up big in Netflix, Netflix. in stock. Yep. So he ended up being fine in the end. Yeah, the owner yeah. was. But me, the yeah, thousands but of people thousand working in stores. Got stiffed. Yeah. Like, how many teenagers was at their job at the end of high school and during college working in a Blockbuster? You know? It's just another one of those jobs that you know people oh, yeah. can say they did as teenagers or their early twenties as their first part-time job. Yep. You know, walking around looking for the right video or DVD. Yep. Can, can I ask? That seems to say that the people that are most at ri- the m- people that are most at risk of let's say large failures or in in you know, in big businesses are the the smaller players who are the ones that are. It, through the book we're trying to communicate better to and with and trying to onboard them with the i guess the the company narrative so it's it's weird that the people that are most at risk also cannot empower themselves that seems like an unfair no it's something there's a constant theme in stan's book and that is unless the leadership of an organization switch on right people have to work around the organization again you watched me work around the uni to make sure (laughs) you had a better experience yes Plenty of us have been in organizations where we go, the organization does this, but I'm not inflicting that on you. Okay. I will find a way to wiggle around it. But what we want is an organization where the leadership go, we've been doing well, mm. but there's always risk. Or we could grow. There'll always be risk. But what we need to do is be aware of it, be training for it, mm. empowering you all to deal with it. Because once you start doing that, it doesn't matter if you're the biggest player or the smallest player. Mm. You don't get wrong-footed. You don't get hit by the brick. Yeah. You know, you affect the brick rather than the brick running you over. Yep. Hmm. I'm immediately drawn to my retail job, thinking I could think of a thousand ways that this applies. It's actually gotten worse. You all do little things to work around the company's inability to be adaptive and to acknowledge risk and to value people yes yeah. and equally i can also see how the narrative who we are what we do and having everyone on board with that has deteriorated over time you're getting a bigger say do gap which means all of you will pay attention to what you see not what they say totally yeah and it really is the kiss of death for an organization like once no one listens to what the institution says anymore other than to giggle hysterically yeah. about the gap between say and do has got even bigger yeah 
And you go, okay, the people saying that, they may not believe it, but they're dumb enough to say it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what it gets to in organizations. It's that people who are dealing with the problems day to day look at the voices coming down from on high going, okay, maybe you don't understand what it's like on the ground, but you are actually crazy enough to say that to me when I work at ground level. Yeah. You really think I'm going to buy, you know, drink the poisoned Kool-Aid? No. And then you start getting what normally happens next in institutions, and that is the first people to leave institutions are normally very talented people at lower levels who can't affect change because they recognize this is frustrating and I am talented enough to get a better job. Mm. So what it means over time is as you lose more and more talent at the ground level in any organization – those were the people that were working around the system to provide a better outcome. Yep. And if they're not there, they're also not promoted. So then the organisation you know, becomes even slower to respond to whatever you know, path it's on. Its inertia becomes even more obvious. I mean, that's one of the greatest things a HR department can do, isn't it, is to sit down and look at what their retention rate of employees are and if yep. they're leaving, where are they, who are they leaving to yep. and what are those organisations doing yep. that, that we're not? Yep. Mm. You know, clients, you know, the sales team should be looking at clients, the customer service team should be looking at clients and HR should be looking at you know, the organisation staff. Mm. And in both cases, if you're not getting retentions, if you're not getting referrals, like even another good guide mm. in HR is when you take new people on, how did they find the job? Mm. Ideally, in good organisations, and then something like um, you know, Raj Sasodia's book, Firms of Endearment, what's quite clear is most good organisations, huge proportions of new staff are referrals from existing staff who only applied because a friend or family member said, come and work where I work. It's awesome. So if you can't get referrals from your own staff and your own clients, something is actually going wrong. <laughs> And we just sit here and think of all the organisations we interact with and how many of them oh, yeah. get referrals from clients or staff. It's unfortunately really rare. And, you know, there's a joke, you know, particularly in special operations but in the military generally, that war is becoming a family business. <laughs> okay, because you don't end up in special operations unless you had friends or big brothers or dad. Eventually it'll be mum too. You'll only know about this world and you'll only know if it's worth being in if you knew someone in it. Otherwise, you're so divorced from that reality, you, it'll just be like, why would you go somewhere so alien? So what bridges the gap to very specialist, high-tempo worlds is that thing of referral. Far out. <laughs> Do we... That feels like a... A pretty natural end point, Yeah, it does. It? it feels like a, a kind of cap to uh, what sounds like a pretty powerful book. Luke, you got anything else you want to add, or are you all happy? No, I'm happy with that. It's just very. It's it's. Sorry, no. I will one more thing. It's transferable right down to the micro, though. Like mm. even if you're yes. even if you were to treat your your family as an organisation, you can you can look at. I mean, I've been able to to look at sort of my own family mm. now with two little girls and moving house, all that sort of stuff. Well, 
in an uncertain world, how can I best guard my own family from risk? And mm. you, not that I'm going to sit down at the, the the dinner table with my wife and two girls and go and right, pre-mortem. guys, We're pre-mortem, break it, let's, break the let, world. Yeah, let's assume, let, let's assume <laughs> that mum or dad are going to die in a car crash. Right, what yes. are we going to do? Yeah. How are we going to get through this? Gosh. But you can, if you can be objective enough, you can say, well, okay. Interest rates are going to go up to 5%. Yep. Yep. What do we do? What do we do? Are we, yep. are we good here? Yep. Can we yeah. start putting a little bit of extra away in case yep. that that happens? You know, we go into COVID gets away from us mm. again. All of a sudden, we're going into huge lockdowns, right? How? What are yep. we going to do when that, when yep. that happens? With two yeah. little ones, what are going to be the safe-to-fail moments in their childhood yeah. where you give them the chance to fail, but it's Ooh, totally yeah. okay? They know the point is to just have a go to learn to have a go and how to have a go effectively. Mm. Like safe to fail as a concept is going to become so important in so many organisations because otherwise people won't take the risk. And for kids where we you know, we give them this totally safe world now in so many ways. Mm. No, if we're going to do that, we also need to give them safe to fail moments where you go, now, I want you to have a go, but it's no problem if it goes wrong. Just have a go. And you'll feel better if it goes well but you'll learn something even if it goes wrong. The power of that is massive. David and I, we've talked before about how the entrepreneurial spirit in Australia reflects nothing like what it does in America. And you have businesses that seem to fail and fail fast and yeah. uh, because that's just how it is. But it, there I, it seems to be this confidence maybe that there's, and not just economically speaking, how this phrase is normally used, but maybe when businesses get too large, that they're like too big to fail. Yeah, like too big to fail out of the GFC has mm. given lots of large companies the idea that we'll be fine because someone's going to save us. And it's the dumbest thing there's no we risk. ever did. Yeah. Because we have told them, no matter how dumb you are, those of us who had no money in what you do will be made to pay for you through taxation. So there should be, you know, other than health systems, militaries, education systems, nothing is too big or too important to fail. Mm. And too big to fail is a dumb term. <laughs> too important to fail, that I see some merit in for healthcare, education and security. Oh, yeah. But beyond that, nothing is too big to fail. If anything, it failing will prove that the people in it had no idea what they were doing or took responsibility properly or were trained to manage risk properly. Yes, exactly. And as Stan makes the point throughout the book, you know, risk specialists were sidelined all over Wall Street so they wouldn't interrupt the, you know, the making of cash. Oh, oh yeah. The, yeah. The, the token chief risk officer that we've yeah. got on our staff <laughs> and they've got a, a sign on there, never asked to any meetings. Yeah, no, they're no, not no, invited no. to anything at top tier. Yeah. Yep. Like, hello, your risk person and your comms person should be at every major meeting simply because it's the risk person who's going to see it before everyone else and it's the comms person who's going to integrate what's going on into the narrative. And if you're not looking for risk and you're not integrating what's going on into your narrative, you're going to fail. It's just a question of when and how catastrophically because they're two core things. The safe to fail thing is is huge. I think it would have probably been twelve months ago when we you first started talking to me about it, mm. and I've tried to sort of implement it in in parts of my life, and I've talked to people at work about it, and sometimes a lot of people look at you like you're talking alien. talking yeah. alien to them. What do you yeah. mean safe to fail? Like, but 
I was listening to um, like a, a bike racer, like a, a cyclist, talking about how he didn't start winning races until he was comfortable that he could lose them. Yep. Because in order to win or in order to succeed, there is going to be this element of risk. Yep. And you have to be happy that you're Whoa. to fail yep. before to you're going to, to be able to take yep. enough of a chance. Yep. And that's something that I try to do. I mean, my girls are only very, very, very young. But just to provide an environment for them where... It's okay. Yeah, it's okay. And I think even last time we caught up, you said you don't want to see perfection. You just want to see slightly better yeah. than, than last time. Yeah. But even then, even if you're not slightly better, it's okay. It's we'll just okay. Because yeah. we'll you come tried back to something it. new and worked out that path. It was worth trying. It seemed interesting. That path didn't deliver. And but we still learned something from it not delivering. And that's the Carol Dweck thing, isn't yeah. it? The, having, it uh, having that growth mindset. Yeah. Oh, I tried that. Well, that wasn't a good way to progress this, but I still learned something, and that is don't try that way. Yeah. It's still a good lesson. Wow. Okay. Uh, maybe we can finish up then because it's very clear. I think we brought it up a couple of times about what, what pairs well with this book. So maybe let's finish up with, with saying like, maybe some supplementary reading if you're interested in this as well. Yeah, I think for people in big organizations, after you read this, you go to Chris Fussell's book, One Mission, which is the nuts and bolts how-to guide of implementing the risk book in a reasonably big organization but if you just read one mission you're doing nuts and bolts without maybe entirely understanding the concepts so risk first and then if you're big organization people back to one mission in terms of individual like mm. you just want to live your life a bit better Ant Middleton's book The Fear Bubble mm-hmm. is the next logical book if you're about what can I take from this risk book and put in my own brain mm. to just be more comfortable taking risks and taking educated risks. The fear bubble would be a logical thing to pair with it, I think. Equally told in an interesting narrative. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Luke. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in the, uh, the studio today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. And thank you, David. Thank you, gentlemen, and thank you, audience. Bye. Hello, audience. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. <laughs>